Welcome to the Primate Cast. Hey, everyone. Now, Andrew, we are pretty fortunate here at the Primate Research Institute because we get a lot of interesting visitors coming for a lot of different research purposes. We do indeed. And it's really nice for us doing this uh, podcast when they come. We kind of take them aside and ask them if they'd like to sit down and talk about their research. Yeah, and fortunately, people are usually pretty willing to do so. So we have a bit of an archive now that's, mm-hmm. uh, that is, continues to grow. And today, what we like to do is get back on top of that and bring up one of the interviews we conducted in March of this year, 2012, with Dr. Cyril Gruter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so he was visiting Japan, um, and specifically the Primate Research Institute, to meet with some collaborators, um, Dr. Goro Hanya and Dr. Yamato Tsuji, to talk about uh, temperate primates and the ecology of temperate primates and also uh, Dr. Iki Matsuda to talk about a, an upcoming special issue in the International Journal of Primatology on multi-level societies. Mm-hmm. Um, those two are, are putting that together or have put that together with Dr. Changfang in, in China as well. And so we were, we were happy to have him sit down with us in the podcast. Absolutely. And we should probably just get right into that. Sure. All right, so here's the interview. There he is. So we're joined here with Cyril Gruter. Who's visiting us? Well, from from where are you visiting us today? Um, actually, from Switzerland. Yeah, I completed my postdoctoral work at the Max Planck Institute in Germany in Leipzig, okay. and now I'm basically jobless for a few months. But I will soon start a new position in Australia, a teaching position okay. and research position. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and so in Australia, you where will you be based? In Perth, at the University of Western Australia, in the Department of Human Biology and Anatomy. Okay. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the new position. Thank you very much. <laughs> and bringing primatology to Australia. Exactly. Yeah. Many primates there, but. I mean, it's mostly um, morphological research sure. that they are doing some uh, n- neurobiological research, physiological research, endocrinological work. So I would like to cover uh, the primatological aspect yeah. okay so the term primatological itself is pretty diverse so so yeah. what is your background then uh, I'm mostly interested in uh, primate social evolution what are the costs and benefits of group living in primates and I'm particularly interested in one type of social organization in multi-level societies okay multi-level societies are probably among the most complex primate societies because you have several social levels you usually have uh, one male units or harem units at the basis and then there's higher levels of social grouping like bands or communities or whatever and there's only very few primate species that exhibit such a multi-level societies like gelada baboons or hamadryas baboons and also some colobines like uh, rhinopithecus That's and right. also humans basically live in a multi-level societies sure. okay. we have family groupings that get together into larger social units yeah that's right. And, and so Japan actually has a bit of a history in primatology studying species that exhibit these multi-level societies. Did you have any connection to the researchers here previously? Uh, so, for example, Akio Mori did some work with gelada baboons. Yeah, I'm, and, I'm aware of his work with gelada yeah, baboons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then more recently, we had a, a PhD student and postdoc, uh, Champang from, from China, who studied the the Sichuan's numbnose monkeys as well. Exactly right. So Changpong and Iki Matsuda and me, we are working on a special issue on multi-level societies to be published in the International Journal of Primatology. Okay. It's for the first time that we are trying to get together researchers studying different kinds of primate species, also non-primate mammals that live in multi-level societies and try to integrate all these findings into 
into co coherent model or whatever. Yeah, it's quite a daunting task because it's such a complex phenomenon. But that's right. And it, you were describing earlier that that uh, editor of IJP was okay with you bringing in studies on. Well, what, what, what else is going to be in the special issue? Well, there's one paper on sperm whales, which live in very complex mm -hmm. societies, one on Asian and African elephants, and one on human hunter-gatherers. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So when can we expect to see this? Uh, I would say prob two papers, two contributions have already been published on the website. Okay. But we expect the special issue to be ready sometime later this year. Probably by the end of the year it should be, should be out, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty cool that you... Uh, studied in China how did you get affiliated there and start your studies there because they have so many primates but not a lot of research going on that's true I mean it's extremely difficult uh, to establish a research program in China as a foreigner I mean first of all um, you need to find a counterpart you know that helps you to get the permit to work in a national park something like that you need to learn some Chinese without any Chinese you can survive in China that's for sure how is your um, Chinese? Uh, I would say my Chinese was quite good in uh, like 2007, you okay. know, like th my Chinese peaked when I was actually in the field and I had to use it every day. Yeah. But now it's kind of, it has yeah. <laughs> suffered a little bit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I can still get by, I can communicate, yeah. Mm. Great. And have you always had a focus on the multi-level societies or how did you get interested in that topic? I actually first got interested in Rhinopithecus before I got interested in multi-level societies. Mm -hmm. I was a bit naive when I had to decide on a topic for my masters. And I was basically looking at that pictorial guide of living primates. <laughs> and uh, for the snub-nosed monkeys, there was a lot of missing information. That's so right. for several social variables, it was written NA, not applicable or not available or whatever. So this kind of uh, got me thinking, you know, and I, I wanted to figure out why is there nothing known about their social behavior and their social organization. And then I went to China for the first time in 2001. I just wanted to explore the area. I want to see uh, the, the natural environment where these rhinopithecus live in Yunnan province. Mm -hmm. And I quickly understood why nobody has done any research there, because it's extremely rugged terrain. Mm -hmm. um, it's in winter it gets very cold it, uh, it's snow covered and it's very remote and it's not an easy place to do field work that's for sure right and I didn't even see any snub-nosed monkeys during my first trip <laughs> yeah <laughs> wow I'm sure a few of the listeners might have had similar experiences in their own field work yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then I decided to do my master's research in captivity working with a captive population of Rhinopithecus pieti there's okay. no Rhinopithecus Bieti held outside of China. So there's only two captive populations, one in Beijing, one in Kunming. So I decided to do my research on the population in Kunming. Okay. And it was uh, generally about social behavior. I, I started with an ethogram and then I moved on to study post-conflict uh, uh, behavior. Okay. Um, I quantified levels of aggression and I quantified uh, the conciliatory tendencies and something like that. Okay. And we found that there are actually, they live in a highly egalitarian system. They have very high post-conflict uh, conciliatory tendencies, so, which is typical for colobines, yeah. Okay. And so how long did you spend in the field during your PhD work? It was 18 months. 18 months. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that for 14 of those, you had no idea exactly how many monkeys you were studying. Yeah. 
uh, local people kept telling me that there were about 200 individuals in that group, but I just couldn't verify that information because most of the time we saw just a part of the group uh, up in the tree crowns. Mm -hmm. We had no idea of how many individuals were down on the ground or in the understory. Mm -hmm. Until one day in uh, 2006, um, when the group crossed an open area, it was a gap in the canopy, like a gully or something like that, I could actually for the first time count all the members in the study group. Okay. And I was amazed when I realized that there were more than 400 individuals in the group. It was 410 individuals that I counted. Which is quite amazing. So that seems to be the thing with these multi-level societies, right? We're talking about a way to kind of structure an incredibly large number of individuals yep. into some kind of a coherent system. Exactly right. In most Asian colobines, we, we, we find one male units, single, independent one male units. But there's only very few taxa where these one male units get together in larger bands. So the question, the question was, what are the benefits and what are the costs of living in these very large bands? Mm -hmm. And? Well, <clears throat> as for the, the benefits, I mean, first of all, you need to have a large resource base that allows such large groups to form. Like in gelada baboons, you have these alpine grasslands where, where a thousand gelatas can feed simultaneously without experiencing substantial feeding competition. Mm -hmm. And with the rhinopithecus, it's basically the same because their staple food or their staple fallback food is lichens mm -hmm. and lichens are quite abundantly available almost every conifer tree in their natural habitat has some uh, lichens hanging down from the branches so this is the ecological precondition for forming these large multi-level societies mm -hmm. but that doesn't explain why this particular social system has been selected for so there must have been another reason mm -hmm. and um, Predation doesn't really make sense because there's no need to form such super groups to be protected from uh, predators. Mm -hmm. I think a hundred individuals would probably be sufficient because uh, um, the, the, the benefit of uh, being protected from predators, uh, the group size benefit at some point probably saturates. So there's no need to form groups of this magnitude. And may actually <coughs> start dropping the other side of the slope if the group then becomes more obvious yeah exactly right yeah and what kind of predators do they have to deal with well they use they well these days they don't have any natural predators maybe maybe leopards or uh, maybe clouded leopards but we haven't found any evidence of predation mm -hmm. and there is uh, birds of prey that might catch a, a juvenile or an infant that is playing up in the tree crowns but i don't think that predation explains why they form these large groups so we were trying to uh, look at social um, factors that might play a role, like um, the threat of bachelor males. Yes. We know that in these large multi-level groups, there's also very large bachelor groups that are always hanging out at the periphery of the bands. Mm -hmm. So they're basically constantly following the bands and they pose a constant threat to the unit leaders, to the harem owners. Mm -hmm. So it has been shown for uh, zebras that when stallions get together the chance of being attacked or harassed by a bachelor declines okay it's basically a safety in numbers effect and with the mm -hmm. zebras it has also been shown that these stallion males they they collaborate in attacking the bachelor males okay so i was trying to test this bachelor threat hypothesis for rhinopithecus and do the bachelor males if they do succeed in getting into the group commit infanticide they take over the group and infanticide has also been uh, demonstrated, mm -hmm. yeah, it has also been shown in the field, yeah, that they do commit infanticide. Okay. 
But it was very difficult to test this uh, hypothesis in the wild, so I, I chose another approach. I did a comparative analysis. I extracted information from the literature about the presence or absence of modularity. By mm -hmm. modularity, I mean this tendency to get together into larger bands, having extreme home range overlap and so on. And we actually found that in those populations where there's a lot of bachelors around, the tendency to form uh, multi-level societies is much higher. There was a significant okay. difference, yeah. Very interesting. And we quantified the presence of bachelor males by looking at the sex ratio of the bisexual population. Yeah. The more biased the sex ratio of the bi uh, bisexual population, the more males are expected okay. to be excluded and the higher bachelor threat is expected to be. So we found this neat correlation between these two variables. So there seems to be an effect of bachelor threat on this tendency to aggregate. And the same model has been tested with gelada baboons recently and they found exactly the same. Okay, so, so it might yeah. be something that's a little general and robust. Yeah. They call it, uh, the, the, we, we could also call it the, uh, the social predator hypothesis. Okay. It's not natural predators, it's social predators that have an effect on grouping patterns. Okay, so completely changing gears here. Yep. So at MPI then you left China and you started work on mountain gorillas. Yes, I started working on another montane primate population. <laughs> yeah. From the mountain from the Himalayas to the Virunga volcanoes in Central Africa, yeah. Okay, so yeah. what was that experience like then? I mean, there's obviously a lot of history. Uh, yeah, you're working at the Karasoke Institute yeah. there. I mean, I felt very privileged to be able to uh, study those mountain gorillas that Dine Fossey habituated right. for uh, to, to human beings. I mean, it was it was an amazing experience and it was so different from working in China because the, those gorillas are fully habituated so you, you could actually get very close to them, you could individually recognize the animals, right. you, you, you knew all their individual life histories, it was a totally different experience. Mm -hmm. And there are not 400 of them in well, one group. Uh, <laughs> although the, the average group size has increased over time, now the average group size is much larger than in the past. Okay. I mean, the whole population has increased from 250 in the 1980s to 480 in 2010. And the average group size has gone up as well. Hmm. So we were basically interested in whether these gorillas in the Virunga volcanoes still have sufficient resources, hmm. whether they are approaching the carrying capacity. I see. So we had some comparative data about food availability that were collected 20 years ago and we resampled the same area, we, we re replicated the same study in order to find out whether food availability has changed as the population density has increased. And so uh, my understanding is that specific place kind of also has a long history with conservation. So does your studies have kind of a conservation aspect to them? Uh, absolutely. I mean, th these results are obviously very important for conservation management. I mean, the Virunga volcanoes, it's basically a forest island, it, which is surrounded by agricultural fields. So there's no way of dispersing or of moving to another empty habitat for the gorillas. They're basically confined to this patch of forest. And at some point, the population will reach its carrying capacity. We just don't know when this will happen. Mm -hmm. And there's been lots of studies on other mammals where the population has reached a peak and then the population just crashed. So something like this could also be, we could predict something like this for the gorilla population. So I believe it's very important to monitor the food resources because that's what sustains the population. Everybody's happy about uh, every newborn gorilla and about uh, 
constantly increasing population size, but not many people are actually worried about. What does this mean in, in terms sure. of resource competition, in terms of resource availability, sustainability of the population? Yeah. So what's next for Cyril Gruter? <laughs> I, I, if possible, I would like to continue working on these two species. Yeah. And keep working on multi-level societies and maybe expand the horizon a little bit by also starting to think about humans, about the human social system. What are the parallels? Hmm. What can we learn about this human social evolution by studying multi-level sociality in non-human primates? Okay. Sounds exciting. Wow. And is there a, any crossover with kind of ethnography? You mentioned small-scale societies in Africa before. Yeah. So are you studying them in terms of multi-level? Uh, not me, but uh, who knows? Maybe that's right, a possible yeah, project for really the future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously. Yeah. I think it would be worthwhile to actually cross the gap and, and bring these two disciplines together, cultural anthropology, biological anthropology. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because there's, there's generally been a trend to widening the gap between yeah, those two yeah, fields. Yeah. <laughs> right, sometimes. I remember Bill McGrew when he when he gave his final roundup for this uh, small symposium we had in Kyoto a few years ago. His uh, main point was we've seen a lot of interesting research from a lot of young scientists, but one thing that he he wanted to put a call out for was to bring more anthropology back into primatology. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting. Uh, just before I forget too, what are you doing here in Japan? Um, I'm working on a special issue together with uh, Yamato and uh, Goro. So that's um, Yamato Tsuji and Goro Hanya. Exactly right, yeah. So we had a symposium at the International Primatology Conference in 2010 in Kyoto about adaptations of primates to temperate environments. So what, what kind of uh, strategies do they have to cope with extreme resource season, uh, seasonality, with extreme cold, with lack of resources in winter? So that was the idea, because that's exactly what the snub-nosed monkeys also experience. They experience... Um, a shortage of uh, food resources in winter. In winter, there's basically no fruits available, no leaves available. Mm-hmm. So they have to come up with some fallback strategies to uh, to survive. So we are basically comparing strategies in colubines versus strategies in macaques to see whether there's differences or similarities in order to expand how they have conquered the, the tem- temperate zone. <laughs> yeah, Primates of the temperate zone, I like yeah. it. Mm. Okay. Well, there's also human primates in the temperate zone, and there there were Neanderthals, and I don't know. Maybe this will also shed light on human evolution. Who knows? All right, Cyril. Well, thanks for joining us on the sure. Primate Cast. Thank, Thank you very, you very much. much. Yeah. Yeah.